Welcome to Dead Ideas in Teaching and Learning. I'm Katherine Ross, Executive Director of the Center for Teaching and Learning at Columbia. I'm speaking today with Dr. Laura Rendon. As a quick reminder for our listeners, in this podcast series, we are exploring dead ideas in teaching and learning. In other words, ideas that are widely believed, though not true, and that drive many systems and behaviors in connection to teaching, exercising what Diane Pike called the tyranny of dead ideas. Dr. Laura Rendon is Professor Emeritus at the University of Texas, San Antonio. She is nationally recognized as an education theorist, activist, and researcher who specializes in college preparation, persistence, and graduation of low-income, first-generation students. A native of Laredo, Texas, Dr. Rendon's passion is assisting students who, like her, grew up in poverty with hopes and dreams, but not knowing how to realize them. She is credited with developing the theory of validation, which colleges and researchers have employed as a framework for working with and affirming low-income students. Dr. Rendon is also a teaching and learning philosopher and thought leader. She is the author of the book, Senti Pensante, Sensing Thinking Pedagogy, Educating for Wholeness, Social Justice, and Liberation, in which she developed a pedagogic framework that emphasizes intellectual, social, emotional, and spiritual student development, along with incorporating social activism. Welcome to our Dead Ideas podcast, Laura. It is such an honor to have you as our guest today. Such a pleasure to join you, uh, Catherine. Thank you so much for the invitation. And um, I want to begin with uh, an expression of, of unity and commonality. In the Maya culture, there's this beautiful term called inlakesh, inlakesh, which means I am another you. And this is similar to uh, other terms used th throughout the world. In Africa, for example, they have the term Ubuntu, the Lakota have to all my relations. And then I just learned that in the Islamic tradition, they have a beautiful term called alamea, which relates to withness, you know, being together, the whole idea that we are never alone and that we, we're individuals, but we're also a part of the greater collective. And so it's just a pleasure to, to join you uh, as an, another person who is aligned with uh, the ideas that we're going to be speaking about today. So to you and to the audience uh, that, that, that is uh, listening to the podcast, in La Kesh. That is so beautiful. Thank you so much for that lovely opening. Let me just give our listeners a little bit of background here. Um, in 2009, I read Dr. Rendon's book, Senti Pensante, and it literally changed everything I thought I knew about higher education, um, as well as deeply influencing my role as an educational developer. Um, her, the work just inspired my work for decades now, literally. Um, and it occurred to me recently that as we're thinking about our collective return to campus the after this, well, still going through this pandemic, 
um, that we really need sentipensante pedagogy now more than ever. And while Dr. Rendon has been doing this work of changing higher ed uh, for decades also, maybe now is the time. Maybe now higher ed is finally ready to embrace her vision of what teaching should look like as we return and we think about how we recover and reflect and reframe our expectations of normal. So my first question, Laura, is about your 2009 introduction. Um, you wrote in your introduction to the book, and I quote here, the purpose of this book is to assist in guiding the transformation of teaching and learning in higher education so that it is unitive in nature emphasizing the balanced harmonic relationship between two concepts, such as intellectualism and intuition, teaching and learning, the learner and the learning material, the Western and non-Western ways of knowing. I seek to shatter the belief system that has worked against wholeness, multiculturalism, and social justice. Those are powerful words. And so here we are 12 years on and a global pandemic later. What would you say now in your introduction? Well, thank you for embracing my work. Uh, first of all, Catherine, that means uh, a great deal to me. And I've also learned over time as I uh, develop into wisdom, which is a constant process, as you well know, that sometimes ideas take a while to take hold. There's some that you know, go out there and, you know, people latch onto them fairly quickly, but there are other ideas that, that, that take a long time. So it's been 12 years since Sente Pensante, um, Sensing Thinking Pedagogy uh, has been uh, released, and so much has happened in the world since then, in particular over the past uh, year and a half. And so there are a few things that come to mind in relationship to, you know, how do we move forward with the ideas expressed in Senti Pensante Pedagogy. Uh, number one, of course, is that we need to recognize that the world is getting much more complex, much more fragmented. Um, we're at a loss for some solutions uh, to some very pressing equity and justice issues that confront the world. Um, uh, you know, for example, we, we haven't dealt, dealt well with issues of racism, issues of sexism, issues of homophobia, issues of how we treat low-income communities and issues of poverty. I mean, uh, we, we're dealing as we speak with Afghanistan and the chaos that has ensued there. I mean, what, this, this, this speaks to this whole notion of what kind of an education do students need to have to help us work with and solve these complex problems? Is the education that we provided students in the past the best way to proceed? I say no. I, I think there's some good things about what we've done in the past, but certainly there are some things that we need to do better. Uh, and so that's one issue that I think uh, uh, that, that, that I would bring forth. The second one is, of course, to, to shatter the falsehoods that are so entrenched in the academy that, and some that actually lead to, to harm. Um, 
And uh, for example, you, you spoke about some of them, but we privilege, for example, thinking over sensing, knowledge over wisdom, the deficit model as opposed to the asset-based model. I mean, on and on, I invite listeners to think about uh, some of these entrenched falsehoods. And, 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 and in, a, in a sense, they're not dead, really, you know, because they are, they are, they're alive in our consciousness. These beliefs are being held in mass consciousness. They're alive in our minds. Um, they're alive in our system. And we perpetuate them sometimes unknowingly. Uh, we validate them. We reward them. Uh, and they're so entrenched that if, even if we have the courage to go against them, uh, there'll be a backlash uh, for us in terms of uh, even challenging uh, these, these notions. Um, and we need to realize that the model is really not working. All we have to do is look at student outcomes, particularly for underserved student populations, first to second year retention rates, for example, uh, even five and six year retention rates, particularly in STEM fields of study. So, I mean, if everything was working, you know, we would have 90% uh, of the students or more uh, um, you know, achieving their, their hopes and dreams, but we don't have that. So something's not right. And so we have a system that I believe is contaminated with these falsehoods, these lies, as Don Miguel Ruiz would, would put it. Uh, and and we, we have an opportunity here. I think when, one of the gifts of the pandemic, if I may call it that, that, because I know there are terrible things happening, but I think there's some inherent gifts in the pandemic. And one of them is the ability to just pause and reflect and begin to really take stock of everything that we've done. What has worked? What hasn't? Where did we go wrong? What do we need to do now to, um, uh, to, 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 to move forward? And I believe that um, it begins with us really um, addressing some key questions that, that can guide us forward. Um, listeners will come up with their own question, but questions, but I mean, what are the competencies that are needed now for our students to be really intelligent? Of course, we want them to know facts and figures and critical thinking and problem solving. We want them to be super intelligent, but we also want them to be compassionate human humanitarians. We want them to be bridge builders. We want them to be able to step into the world of the other. We want them to function with a critical consciousness in terms of addressing um, societal inequalities. Uh, and so what are some of these competencies that students need to have? And then what are some of the tools that we might employ to engage students in deep learning experiences? Uh, to foster what Gloria Nasaldúa calls conocimiento, this high level of enlightenment that can be accessed through creative tools and practices. And then I think we also need to reflect on ourselves. This isn't just about content and strategy. It's about self-knowledge. Um, Parker Palmer in his book, The Courage to Teach, talks about who is the self that teaches. And so I, I, I believe that we need to really have the courage to um, look in our, inside ourselves and to what extent have we stood against these entrenched narratives that guide higher education? Um, uh, to what extent do we 
hold the oppressor within us? Uh, what do we need to change? Can we face our, our shadow side? How do we become these new knowledge warriors that are going to step up and really create a, a, a workable model uh, of education that works not just for some, but for all students and particularly those that have been underserved that, that, um, that continue um, to, um, to, to, to have some challenges within our educational system. How do we do all of that? We have a big assignment in front of us. We do, and I couldn't agree with you more that these um, systems and beliefs are deeply, I think you use the term powerful and deeply entrenched. I think of them as our legacy in higher education. And as often the case with legacy, it stays with us but it's rarely ever examined in the light of day. It stays sort of buried underground. It's there, but people don't see it. It's invisible to them. And I think that's where the dead ideas metaphor spoke to me, that we need to actively unearth these beliefs because as a legacy passed from one generation of teachers to another, things never get examined in a in a deep way, um, because we're all operating under these beliefs about what's normal. It's just normal pedagogy. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, it's almost like a hidden curriculum that exists. And, and so we need to illuminate that, that, that curriculum, expose it for what it is, and then we can deal with that. Uh, otherwise, we just keep moving along almost robotically and without thinking. And you're right, it is a generational thing as well. I believe it was James Baldwin that said, um, the past is the present. And so what's happening now has happened in the past. And, and our generation is then um, given the opportunity to solve these issues. And if we don't solve them, then we pass them along to the generation coming behind us. We always have to think about those coming behind us. What are we leaving for them? If we don't solve, for example, the issue of climate change, which is causing havoc throughout the world as we speak, then the next generation is tasked with doing that. And if they don't do it, you know, then the generation behind them. Uh, so, uh, yes, I agree with you that, that, um, uh, that these, these, these falsehoods are, are, are widely entrenched, but they're also widely accepted, unfortunately, uh, widely practiced, uh, and we've got to expose them. Well, I am so happy to do that work with you. <laughs> so I think perhaps a concrete example might help our listeners better grasp what you and I are talking about, the work that needs to be done. And I think you, the agreement you identified as the separation agreement, which is, you know, that instructors are separated from students, disciplines are separated from each other, students are separated from each other. That agreement in particular touches on so much of the teaching and learning behaviors that we consider normal. I thought it would be really interesting for the audience if we could unpack 
some of the underlying tenets of the separation agreement that you identified in your book. So I will just name the the tenet and ask you to think about what you were just saying, right? That we need to change these things. Here's some really concrete things. What should we do differently? So one of the underlying subtenets of the separation agreement is that teaching and learning are linear. Information flows primarily from teacher to student. Yes, uh, that separation agreement is uh, firmly and deeply entrenched. Uh, but let me backtrack a little bit to indicate to, to you that um, that chapter in my book where I expose some of these belief systems or agreements, as, as, as I call them, uh, that chapter is inspired by uh, Don Miguel Ruiz and his book, The Four Agreements. And um, I remember when I read his book, he's got a beautiful quote which says, if we can see it is our agreements that rule our life and we don't like the dream of life, we need to change the agreements. So when I first read that, I was like, whoa, what is he saying here? And essentially, it's something very simple and yet very important. That If we can see that it's these narratives that are ruling our life, our academy, and we don't like those agreements, we don't like that narrative, we just need to change it. That's essentially what he's saying. And he's basically saying, if we want to function well in the world, <clears throat> uh, there are only four agreements that we need to follow. Uh, be impeccable with your word. And, you know, speak with integrity, for example. Don't take anything personally. And that's kind of hard to do at times. Uh, another one that's kind of hard to do is don't make assumptions. And then I've learned that most times assumptions are incorrect. And then always do your best. So reading that book taught me more about transformation and about illuminating these narratives than anything else that I, that I have read. So I just want to give credit to Don Miguel Ruiz and his beautiful book, The Four Agreements. Um, the other thing that comes to mind here as a, as, as a way of context is that in many ways, we are dealing with um, the resolution of, of, of dualities, um, that we, we tend to see the world in, um, in either or ways. Um, and um, what, what is being offered to us, for example, when we look at the duality of teaching and learning, is not so much that we see either teaching or learning, but how these two concepts actually work in um, oppositional complementarity. They're opposites, but yet they complement each other. Um, and so... Looking at these concepts of teaching and learner, learning, learning student, etc., cetera, uh, allows us to then, you know, really become aware of, of what's inherent in those qualities and that sometimes there's something more that comes out of, of those dualities, like a third reality, for example, that I'll speak to in a minute. So you asked about teaching and learning uh, being uh, linear as a, an agreement, a narrative. That, that is in place uh, in higher education. Um, and so I believe that, that, that teaching and learning exist in relationship, they're intertwined. Uh, teachers can be learners, learners can be students. 
Um, I just wrote the forward to a new book called The Courage to Learn. The Courage to Learn. It's, it's co-authored by Paul Mikhail and Marsha Ames Shevely. It's the companion text to Parker Palmer's, Parker Palmer's book, The Courage to Teach. And basically in The Courage to Teach, um, Parker questioned the false choice represented when people ask, what's more important, teaching or learning? He basically said, you know, hold those two concepts in tension and see what you, what you learn from that. Um, but he also asked, who is the self that teaches? And, um, and for us to really become self-reflective uh, and work on our inner life skills. So teaching and learning, um, you know, can flow uh, both ways is, is, the, is the opposite narrative to that. I think there's a quote by Paolo Freire that says, whoever teaches learns in the act of teaching and whoever learns teaches in the act of learning, which I yes. feel like captures what you just said, <laughs> right? It's, it can never be a one-way system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a constant circular system that feeds itself. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. So another um, tenet, underlying tenet that, um, and maybe I'll give you a couple here because they are kind of related. Mm -hmm. um, faculty should keep a distance between themselves and their students and faculty outreach to students such as validation, caring, or encouragement is considered a form of and this is a quote, coddling students who are presumed to be adults and should be strong enough to survive a collegiate environment on their own. If there's one thing that we've learned from the pandemic, it's the importance of relationships, of how we need each other. You know, when the world shut down and we were by ourselves, we realized how much we needed each other. When loved ones around us began to get ill, and some paid the ultimate price. We wanted to be close to them. We wanted to, to, we wanted to really you know, get in touch with, the, with others. And we found ways to do that. People became very creative uh, in doing that. You know? I mean, birthday parties with cars you know, running by, people singing from the balconies in Italy. I mean, we... We became very creative at, at forming relationships while staying distance. There again is, are the polarities and how they complement each other. Um, and there's a new book out by um, two, two good colleagues of mine, Peter Felton and Leo Lambert. It's called Relationship-Rich Education. Relationship-Rich ed Education. And basically, they interviewed uh, students, uh, many students in higher ed, and and the key theme that came out for them that was foundational to student success uh, was the importance of relationships. Um, so faculty should keep a distance from between themselves and students. It's not really what we need to have. We need to have a model where faculty establish authentic, caring relationships, validating relationships, as I would call them, with students. And I often get when, um, when I give and I speak about the importance of relationships and validation, 
you know, faculty will ask, well, isn't that coddling students? I mean, isn't that pampering them? Shouldn't we be tougher with them? And um, it's important to note that we're not talking about making students weaker here. We're actually talking about making them stronger. When I see programs such as the Puente Project in California and Catch the Next Project here in Texas that are validation-rich projects, I don't see weak students. They started out, especially low-income first-generation students that come to college and sometimes they don't even know what questions to ask. Um, They need someone, especially that first semester, those first weeks in the semester, they need someone to reach out to them and let them know that, you know, I'm here for you. Um, I want to help you. I think you can succeed. You can do science. These are the kinds of validating statements and practices. The other thing I've learned about validation is that it has a long-lasting impact. Uh, When I ask faculty and staff, can you think of the person or persons who have been there for you in your life, the people that you can turn to, the people who lift you up? And they talk about uh, their parents, they talk about their kids, they talk about a mentor, they talk about a coach, you know, whoever it is. And that relationship may have happened 10, 15, 20 years ago, but they still remember it today. And that is the impact of that validating relationship. So instead of separation, let's talk about relationships. Let's talk about, you know, really working within a paradigm where where, um, uh, we adhere to the notion that we're relational human beings. And we learned that in the pandemic. All of a sudden we were like, wow, we need each other. We certainly did. And I think students demanded it in some ways in maybe a way they hadn't previously sitting in a classroom. They recognized, at least some of the students I spoke with in this podcast series, they recognized that they needed that community and they needed the connection to their professor. And even when I asked some students, because many schools like Columbia went to pass-fail grading, um, which, you know, is grading, motivating learning is another one of Diane's dead ideas, right? And I asked students what happened to their motivation for learning with with the switch to pass-fail. And they said that they actually found it freeing in that they could pursue questions they were passionate about. They could be more honest about their own work and noting the flaws in it because they weren't going to be risking their grade point average. And that what really motivated them, and they saw this in their peers as well, was the relationship they had with the professor that they didn't want to let the instructor down because that relationship was so valuable to them. So I think your words are spot on for what's how the pandemic has really shown a light on this need. That's a, that's a very powerful statement that the students made, that they didn't want to let the, the instructor, the teacher down. That's exactly what I've heard when I, when I speak you know, to low-income students in a project that is so validation-rich. And when, when I ask them, um, 
So why are you still in college while others have left? They'll say, you know, we're in disbelief that we're getting this here. And we owe it to them to stay. Uh, we don't want to let them now. If they're doing all of this for us, uh, we owe it to them to not drop out. Uh, and so that's the power of these validating relationships that we often overlook, unfortunately. Yes. And I think in a related question that I have, it's also tied to some very deep, deeply entrenched beliefs about merit and how students succeed or don't in our systems and our beliefs around teaching and learning. Um, you note in your book, in Senti Pensante, that um, there is a scientific origin for this idea that there is a kind of survival of the fittest and mm -hmm. that somehow in higher education, we've adopted this agreement um, where we privilege competition over collaboration, right? Over the relationship building collaborative ways of teaching and learning. Competition is what is highly valued. Um, and we call that merit. And I think it's important to unpack this idea of merit because it it sort of represents a whole bunch of other dead ideas like <laughs> that that there is um you know instructors can feel like their teaching is a separate thing from the student learning right and if the students don't learn it's because the students have deficits it's a student problem right because they don't see the teaching and learning unity that you describe um so i think um, even Carl Wyman, the Nobel laureate physicist who spent like 20 years trying to change how, more than 20 years probably, trying to change how science is taught. I asked him what's the biggest barrier to getting instructors to change their teaching. And he said the idea that it's always their students who are the problem. Um, so it's a very powerful, yes. deeply entrenched yeah. idea. So yeah. I'm curious, like, you know, this idea of merit, it drives everything, right? Grading, how we assess students, credentialing, getting internships, all of these things are based on this. But how did higher ed ever decide that it was a good idea to um, weed out students as opposed to bringing students along and keeping them in? Mm -hmm. uh, disciplines. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, all ideas, I believe, are, I mean, they start somewhere and, and then more and more people begin to believe in the ideas and then they, they just become a part of the mass consciousness, uh, which tells me that we can also be a part of that mass consciousness by creating different ideas, different truths. Um, so this whole notion of merit has a number of nuances attached to, to it that, 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 that you've, um, alluded to, um, the whole idea of, of competition. Um, and uh, the other side of competition is collaboration. Um, so uh, we, we've just overprivileged, I believe, competition. And it's not that we're going to say, let's do away entirely with competition. Certainly, I mean, we have competition in sports, for example. Um, but also, 
even in sports, there's collaboration. There's competition, but there's collaboration. See how, how we're playing here with these dualities and how they work together. Um, and, uh, and it also speaks to this notion of merit, who's dumb and who's smart and who decides that. Um, it also speaks to, do we work with a model based on fear and intimidation? Or do we work with a model based on inspiration and care and support? Um, what is it that we're going to privilege more over the other? And how, you know, how are we going to um, uh, work within those tensions? Um, you know, in the middle of those tensions, I believe is something that Gloria Nasaldua would call nepantla or liminality, being in an in-between space. And we find ourselves in Nepantla right now. We've got one world, one foot in the world of the past and one foot in the world of the future. It's an extraordinary time. It's a crazy time for sure that we're experiencing. And somehow we were gifted by the universe, I think, with this um, pandemic that just shook the heck out of us. And we're still working to get out of it. We're in that middle liminal space, Nepantla. But that space has a lot of possibilities. That is a space of uh, inquiry that allows us to now rethink and reanalyze and begin to see what do we want in this new future and how are we going to get to that? Um, and so I, I really need to, I, I, I agree with you. I think we need to interrogate these notions of merit and competition. And, and we need to come up with a new narrative that is going to guide us in the future that makes more sense. And that is going to lead us to really have the outcomes that we want with our students. I certainly hope that's the case. And I'm um, happy to see how, in some ways, students have become more empowered through these difficult times as well. And I think that has potential for driving some real change in the academy. And, and I want to say something about the, the whole notion of, of, of deficits, which I think is, is very, very important as well. Um, um, uh, you talked about uh, Carl Wyman, who indicates that uh, sometimes we have the tendency to blame students for their learning failures. And that's the number one barrier to changing how science is taught. Uh, so, wow, what does that tell you? I mean, I, I think that some, some disciplines, and particularly, in particular STEM, has, they've become traumatizing experiences for students. I know of some math faculty who are asking students to write autoethnographies to talk about the trauma that they experienced in their math courses. Um, and it, it speaks to faculty using the classroom to instill fear as opposed to inspiration, uh, as opposed to lifting students up. And it also speaks, I believe, to some faculty um, working with a deficit-based paradigm uh, particularly with, with, with low-income uh, first-generation students, many who are students of color, uh, African-American, uh, Latinx students, um, American Indian students. Uh, and sometimes we, some educators see their communities as having nothing to offer, uh, see students 
who grow up in poverty as having uh, way too many challenges, that they're not going to be successful, that they're always at risk, that they're lazy, that their parents don't care about education, on and on. That is a very entrenched narrative um, in not only higher ed, but in K-12 as well. Um, and what some of my colleagues and I have learned is that students um, from these communities have a lot of unrecognized strengths um, and misunderstood strengths. For example, uh, they have navigational ability. You know, they, they, they're coming to a new world of college that is very different from their home realities. And they've, they've learned to navigate themselves within that new context. Um, they have hopes, they have dreams. They have this beautiful asset uh, that we call giving back, that they want to, they want to earn um, a college degree and they want to learn a lot, but it's not just to have a degree to hang on the wall. I mean, that's nice. They want to use their education um, to help their communities, to, to serve as role models for their family, uh, to make this world a better place to live. So they want to be, for example, in engineers without borders and doctors without borders. It's a, it's a beautiful asset. They have the asset of resistance. They've resisted poverty. They've resisted micro and macro aggressions coming at them all the time. They have the asset of resilience. They've bounced back from many challenges that they faced. Uh, so we, we need to recognize the assets that these students bring and leverage those assets with what we do in higher education. Wow, yes, that's all I can say. I second, third, fourth, and fifth that. Um, I was hoping maybe as we wrap up here that you could share I know you have many sources of inspiration, but what really keeps you motivated to believe in the possibility of change in higher education? Well, um, I've always, first of all, I've always been a hopeful person. I believe we always need to have hope. And um, I've realized also that I may not see, in fact, I don't think I'm going to see everything that I want to see changed in education in my lifetime. Um, I'm an elder now, and um, I know that, you know, my time will be coming to a close. Um, I'm not you know, 30 or 40 years old anymore. And, um, and I can say, well, I'm not going to see them, so I'm going to give up. No, no, no. I may not see what I want to see, but at least I will know that I was a part of the process of creating the change that I seek to see. And that, that, that really, really keeps me going as well. Um, and the honor of my life has been to serve as an advocate for students who grow up like me in poverty and, and, and really helping them to realize all of their goals, all of their aspirations. And so... I'm inspired, too, by so many students that have had so many challenges in front of them, you know, many more than I've faced. And I'm like, wow, um, I, you know, and, and all of their accomplishments, um, they, they were told they, they can't succeed. They've been undocumented. They've had health challenges. I mean, 
They've experienced racism. They've experienced sexism. They've experienced many, many, many challenges. Um, but they kept going. They kept going. And, um, and I'm just so inspired by these students. I mean, I can't give up on them. I can't give up on them. I have to remain hopeful. And uh, I know that for sure that there is another generation that, that, um, that agrees with us. And, um, uh, and I think they're going to take us to where we want to be. It may not happen quickly. Like I said earlier, these things sometimes, um, they take time, uh, but, uh, but we can't give up hope. No, we, we can't. And I thank you for that. And I also thank you for being part of my process of trying to change higher education. I also feel the impetus of age. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, I just feel, I, I feel like your, your work has been so powerful and I don't expect to see it all change either, but I know that it's making a difference and, and your influence has been profound. So thank you so much for sharing your stories with us today. Muchísimas gracias. It's been a pleasure to join you, Catherine, and uh, so, so excited that you're doing this work. Uh, so keep on doing what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try. <laughs> If you've enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website where you can find any resources mentioned in the episode, ctl.columbia.edu backslash podcast. Please like us, rate us, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Dead Ideas in Teaching and Learning is a product of Columbia University Center for Teaching and Learning and is produced by Stephanie Ogden, Laura Nicholas, A.B. Seidel, and John Hanford. Production support from Kate Ty Piggott. Our theme music is In the Lab by Immersive Music.